that time, real estate was the third rail of finance. Nobody wanted to touch it for fear of dying. Well, I'm, I'm a natural born contrarian. So when everybody's running out of the building because they think it's burning, you know, my inclination is to see, hey, let me see what's going on inside that building. <laughs> you know, everyone's leaving. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. It's Monday, October 16th. Isabella is taking a well-deserved vacation, so this week your host is just me, Susanna Cavanaugh. Today we're kicking off a three-part series, and we're looking at one of the investment products that is really at the center of the distress stories that have unraveled over the past year, the Commercial Mortgage-Backed Security, or CMBS. Most people are at least vaguely familiar with RMBS, Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities, aka the root of the housing market crash of 2008 and the ensuing Great Recession. So CMBS, similar thing, security is backed by real estate loans, but in this instance, commercial real estate debt. And because the financials on these investments are made public, CMBS data is how the real deal and other real estate rags industry folks have been tracking the decline of asset classes, such as office or, in some markets, multifamily. So over the next three episodes, we're going to dig into the explosion in CMBS issuance in 2021, how the loans backing those products have performed over the last couple of years, how certain players are now looking to short the market, and finally, what all of this means for multifamily, which is an asset class we've really been digging into over the summer, given the difficulties that have arisen. But we're starting at the beginning with an interview with the founder of CMBS, Ethan Penner. But before we get into that, here's the news of last week. So the biggest story was Hamas's attack on Israel. The Palestinian militant group entered Israeli territory on Saturday, October 7th and killed more than 1,000 people and took at least 100 hostages. That's according to NPR's reporting on Thursday. American citizens were among those killed and taken hostage. Last Monday, President Joe Biden condemned the assault and pledged the United States military assistance. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Israel then declared war on Hamas, retaliating with airstrikes on Gaza that had killed over 1,300 people and injured over 6,000, according to CNN's reporting on Thursday. The Israeli Defense Forces told civilians in Gaza to evacuate their homes, and all crossings between Israel and Gaza had been closed Thursday, quote, potentially setting the stage for a ground incursion, CNN reported. As that news roils the world, New York real estate has taken action. On Thursday, the city's major brokerages said they would close offices on Friday after Hamas called for a global day of rage on Friday, October 13th. Brown Harris Stevens CEO Bess Friedman messaged agents that cities around the country, including New York, are on high alert for large-scale protests that were set to unfold in the wake of the attacks. 
New York City Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul said Thursday night that no specific nor credible threats had been made against Jewish communities in the city. And as of Friday afternoon, nothing had been reported. The city had stepped up its police presence and patrols, though. There's no easy transition from the Israel-Hamas war, but I do want to touch on a few other stories from last week. Rudy Giuliani is grappling with a lien against his lakeside condo in Palm Beach, Florida. The former New York City mayor owes $550,000 in income taxes. But honestly, that's the least of Giuliani's financial problems right now. The former attorney to Donald Trump owes about $3 million in legal fees tied to his efforts to support Trump's bid to stay in office after the 2020 election. Giuliani faces racketeering and defamation charges in Georgia. And he's also being sued by a former associate over unpaid legal fees. In July, Giuliani listed his Upper East Side apartment for $6.5 million. He did not share a reason for that sale. Speaking of trades, though, South Florida saw a number of high-priced sales last week. Alex Rodriguez sold a waterfront lot on Miami Beach's Star Island back to billionaire hedge funder Ken Griffin. It's about one acre of land, and Rodriguez let it go for $45.5 million. Rodriguez was first spotted on the island when he was still engaged to Jennifer Lopez. He had planned to design a 20,000-square-foot mansion on the lot. And the so-called boob god, plastic surgeon Lenny Hochstein, picked up a waterfront home in Miami for $6.8 million, property records show. The boob god snagged a pretty good deal. The seller, an entity led by fashion designer Kirby Jean Raymond, had paid $7.5 million for the four-bedroom, four-bath in April 2022. And I'm going to round things out with Harry Macklow. So Macklow threw an 11th-hour wrench in CIM Group's attempt to foreclose on his home at 432 Park Avenue. This one's a little bit of a doozy. So Macklaw developed 432 Park with CIM. It's one of the needle towers that lines Billionaire's Row, and it has some of the most expensive residences in the city, like tens of millions of dollars for an apartment. Macklaw bought the site in 2006. CIM paid off his debts on the property, and Macklaw sold his interest to CIM, and CIM then agreed to pay the developer a fee for future sales. Last year, Macklow bought three units in the building. He claimed he would pay for them with proceeds CIM owed him, but CIM never paid up, he claims, and instead lent him over $46 million to buy the units. Then Macklow defaulted on the debt, according to CIM. So CIM moved to foreclose, but Macklow stayed the foreclosure auction last minute on Wednesday by placing the entity that controls his equity stake in the apartments into bankruptcy. The move is a common defense against foreclosure. It gives Macklow more time to refi or sell his apartments because it stays any legal action against him. All right, so let's move from one loan to the larger world of CMBS. Here's Isabella's interview with Ethan Penner, founder of CMBS, CEO of Mosaic Real Estate Investors, and author of the new book, Greatness is a Choice. Started off uh, early in my career on the single family mortgage finance business. Um, I found myself to Wall Street in the mid-80s when the secondary mortgage market uh, was just beginning and the trading of mortgage products were rather new on Wall Street. 
And I ended up uh, getting a job at Drexel Burnham, which was an amazing firm, uh, made famous by Michael Milken. And I was uh, trading or making markets in uh, non-agency guaranteed mortgages, so credit and credit risk. And uh, and kind of pioneered structured finance solutions for pools of mortgages. Like I was at the very beginning of that. So let's say there was a peer of mine at the other major firms, but there was only a handful of us that were really kind of pioneering structured finance in mortgage credit. Mm-hmm. By then I went to Morgan Stanley. I was kind of uh, recruited to go there to build uh, mortgage credit, mortgage trading, mortgage finance from scratch. Mm-hmm. I was very young. I was only 26 at the time, so it was amazing. Um, I was told I was the youngest principal in the history of Morgan Stanley. I had a wonderful career there. I loved it there. And um, and I basically had tremendous, uh, I don't know, standing from that experience, right? I was known in the world of, of structured mortgage finance and structured finance, both with the bond uh, buyer community and the rating agencies. And then I saw the dislocations beginning to form on the commercial real estate side. Mm-hmm. And I tried to put use kind of put Morgan Stanley into that business in the beginning parts of this dislocation that occurred roughly 1989 and 1990. And talking about the beginning of the SNL, the SNL crisis, right. And it was at a time when uh, lenders uh, all having been kind of all in on real estate finance, all abandoned it at once uh, and leaving real estate without any traditional source of finance. And as you know, and most of your listeners know, uh, commercial real estate is financed with ballooning mortgages. So roughly a fifth of all mortgages come due for refinancing every year. And if there's no lenders, it's big trouble. And so by... 1990, there was big trouble in the market, and I sensed that there was a unique opportunity to introduce the same securitization techniques that I and others had applied to single-family mortgages to commercial, and I started to move Morgan Stanley in that direction. John Mack, who ran fixed income and later ran the firm, did not want to expose Morgan Stanley's balance sheet to commercial real estate risk at all. And I felt that was uh, something that was a big mistake. I understood, and I left. So I started my own firm. I was backed initially by Cargill, the grain company that had a finance business. And in that time that I had this company, I started to see borrowers that were desperate, that had 50%, 60% loan-to-value exposures that could not get uh, refinancing for maturing loans. And I realized that this was a major, a major opportunity. So I started with Cargill's Capital to make loans and then work with the rating agencies to develop ratings guidelines to get ratings and then work with bond buyers to convince them in in the middle of a real estate debacle to buy real estate-backed bonds. Tell me about the bond buyers here because, you know, you can't, you're telling me that Morgan Stanley, a very large institution, is hesitant about this. Were buyers hesitant oh, too? That time, real estate was the third rail of finance. Nobody wanted to touch it for fear of dying. And every day, you would pick up the Wall Street Journal, and and on the very front page, all you would be reading about is 
billions and hundreds of billions of dollars of losses in real estate and how people were losing their jobs and companies were closing, nobody wanted real estate. So John Mack not wanting real estate was not a crazy perspective. You know, it was very conventional and common for people to feel that way. And well, I'm, I'm a natural born contrarian and, uh, it's, been part of my fabric of my DNA since I was a young child and there's reasons for it that I I've come to understand myself very well so when everybody's running uh, out of the building because they think it's burning you know my inclination is to see hey let me see what's going on inside that building <laughs> you know everyone's right. leaving so I everyone's running out of the building of real estate and uh, leaving it without any source of financing and I think it's when times are very tough, right? Very, very tough that change can take place and change agents can really bring about change. And so it couldn't have been more tough for real estate than 1990, 91, 92. And it created this opportunity for a very young man with very little, if any, standing in the real estate world. I mean, I was head standing in the world of structured mortgage finance, but none in real estate. And here I came into a very mature, big, if not the biggest industry in America, one of the biggest, and at 30, 31 years old, transformed the entire business. That that only happens when things are really tough, you know? <laughs> um, so, I mean, now buyers of CMBS loans are, you know, PIMCO and large institutions, and you've got ETFs um, putting CMBS loans in their portfolios. Well, who were the bond buyers back then? Well, you got to remember, right, I was at Morgan Stanley before that, and I worked with all the biggest bond buyers, which is why I had the credibility to pull something off like that. But it was a lot of the same people, the PIMCOs of the world, um, Fidelity, uh, all the big Franklin, all the big bond buyers, insurance companies, all the big insurance companies. But none of them were um, easy sells, right, because for a couple of reasons. One, it was a real estate um depression everybody ran from real estate and and there was no such thing as kind of structured real estate credit so what we had to do in those early days is physically go on the road and do road shows like they do for IPOs and we would have ballrooms rented out in hotels in all the cities where big bond buyers existed so of course Boston and New York Chicago um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, sometimes Dallas or Miami. And we would invite all the biggest bond buyers to these hotel ballrooms. And I would take the originators who worked on each of the deals that were now represented in these pooled CMBS, we call them mega deals. And typically there would be, I don't know, anywhere from eight at the time, eight to 15 large loans in there. And we would literally go through with projections on a, on a screen the story of each of those deals, each of those assets, and why these loans were credit worthy and, and worthy of these bond buyers' interest. So it was a very, it was a very different world than it is today. Uh, it required a, a tremendous amount of salesmanship. At the time was, because right now you have big CMBS pools, you have the single asset, single borrower deals, you have the collateralized loan obligation, which is slightly different. Tell me how CMBS market has evolved um, into those different kind of product types now. So again, we were the first. And as I suggested, 
at the very beginning, we were making only large loans mm -hmm. and pooling them into these things that we kind of called and actually trademarked mega deals. Mm -hmm. the, then I had the realization that probably 80% of all loans, maybe more, were under at the time 15 or $20 million. And we were not equipped to address that huge component of the commercial real estate market. So I started what we call the conduit and built an entire different system for addressing the needs of the small loan borrower. And we started, so we had two programs we, and two different staffs really. The staff of people who did what, I'll call, what was customized loan transactions for large loans. And then the more kind of um, cookie cutter, you know, non-negotiable small loan uh, team with small loan docs and and we became the largest lender in America, both large loan and small loan. And I think we pioneered both of those areas. So so it all started really back then, what you see today. I wanted to jump to 2008. The RBS market was in trouble and a lot of investors became very skeptical of securitized loans. Tell me what that was like for you. Well, I saw the excesses of the single family mortgage market, which creeped into the excesses in all markets, including commercial real estate lending. Uh, I saw that building years before 2008, right? To me, um, it was very obvious that 2008 and the catastrophe that you know ensued then was going to occur because securitization in the end, it's all about credit. Mm -hmm. So if you have good credits, uh, they're good in however they're packaged, right? Securitization is just the repackaging of things. Mm -hmm. But if the things are garbage, the securitization doesn't somehow, you know, turn, it's not like a Rumpelstiltskin that turns silk into gold, you know? So uh, there was garbage. It was just all garbage, right? 2008, was the culmination of a cycle of credit having been extended to wrongly, just broadly and wrongly. And uh, there was a lot of reasons for it. Um, incentives were pointed in that direction. But, uh, but I would say, you know, if you look at commercial real estate, not a single acquisition made in 2006 and 2007, and not a single loan originated in 2006 and 2007 looked like a good uh, idea in 2008, right? For the hindsight of 2008, which is interesting because 2006, 2007 vintage was the largest uh, vintage of acquisitions and lending in the history of the United States commercial real estate market, which implies that every single, the whole industry was wrong, right? They were so busy doing deals, acquisitions and financings in a, in a time and in a price point that turned out to be 100% bad, right? Not one loan in retrospect was a good loan. Everyone wished they hadn't made a loan, not one acquisition. And so this kind of herd mentality, which I speak about in my book, which we'll probably talk about a little bit, was so pervasive and remains pervasive in the world today. And it leads to these moments in time when the herd goes off the cliff, holding hands all together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened then. So now I'm, I'm just going to keep going from fun. We're going crisis to crisis here. But, you know, I wanted to talk about 
the pandemic and the fundamental shift in commercial real estate values that you're starting to see now as interest rates have risen. Um, how are you thinking about how this you know, might affect the CMBS market? Well, you know, real estate, I brought securitization to commercial real estate in the early 1990s. Securitization had already been brought to pretty much every other asset class before then. So it says something about commercial real estate that it was the last one to kind of kind of access the securities markets for capital. And what I think what it says is that the commercial real estate market is tends to be a bit insular and tends to not see change coming. So what I noticed in kind of the period of time from, I don't know, roughly 2009 or 10 through through to now, is that society was going through, see, I think commercial real estate, the reason, one of the reasons I love commercial real estate is because it's a reflection of societal kind of behavior and societal needs, right? If you think about real estate, um, real estate is the physical space where life occurs. And I, I've created that that definition, but I really like it, right? And when you think about it, to be a good real estate investor, you have to understand and anticipate where people want to live their life and how people want to live their life. And so there's a sociological and human behavior aspect that is critical to being a good real estate lender and a good real estate investor. And I think if you ignore those things, and if you're not paying attention to changing trends in human behavior and sociological inclinations, then I think you're going to do very poorly. Well, I noticed back, I don't know, probably as long as 15 years ago, that the next generation, the generation of professionals coming online that are now probably 35 and older, had a much different um, orientation than my generation or the generations that preceded them. And their desires of how to work and how to shop and how to live and what was important to them were very different. And real estate that was gonna be successful would have to adapt to those needs and have to be able to attract the next generation of people. And I felt that so much of the real estate stock in America and probably in the world was not set up for those people and for the coming generations that were gonna drive real estate decisions and occupancy decisions. So I was not surprised you know, I think COVID accelerated everything, and I think people have said that, and I believe that's true. But I'm not so sure that COVID um, was the change agent as much as the accelerant of trends that were already in place. You know, what comes to mind is the fact that, you know, a lot of, there we've seen many defaults um, related to office properties that are collateralized into CMBS loans. But then we've also seen, you know, Blackstone scored a CMBS loan on the Hotel Del Coronado, um, which is performing exceptionally well. They just finished renovations. Um, you saw Westfield Century City um, score another one point something billion dollar refinancing, and that mole is always packed. Um, so it seems to me like there is still opportunities for CMBS, just maybe towards different asset classes. I guess I don't start by separating CMBS. Again, I start by separating the assets. And you just pointed to two assets, the Hotel Dial mm -hmm. and the Westfield Mall in Century City. They're assets that attract people today, that 
are successful because they attract people. So any investment in the capital stack of those assets, whether it be debt investments through CMBS or direct loans or equity investments, is likely to be a good investment because the assets themselves are attractive to human beings, right? People want to shop there and people want to go vacation there and therefore it's good, right? And uh, the problem is when the buildings are not necessarily attractive to people. And when when demand for space shrinks, uh, it kind of coalesces around the better properties, right? So in a market where there's tremendous demand for office, then, well, the best office is clearly going to do well, but even the worst office or less good office is going to be good because there's so much demand that's going to fill up all the office, right? In times when there's less demand for office, well, the, the really good buildings are still going to do fine because there's not zero demand. It's going to be the marginal buildings that are going to suffer very badly because there's not enough demand to fill them. And I would go back to thinking about demand. One of the insights that I've had recently and I was just reflecting upon with somebody is this notion of fun, right? Like people want to have fun and work is where people spend a lot of their waking time. And if work's not fun, probably life's not fun because life to a very large extent is comprised of work. And so if you're not enjoying the social interactions and your time at work, probably you're not having too much fun in life, right? Well, the working world that I grew up in um, is very different than the working world today, okay? The freedoms to say what you want to, people were a little more thick-skinned back then, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was like a party. Like going to work was literally like a party. You know, if you go to a bar today, um, that same kind of freedom to say what you want and, you know, not get punished for it is kind of reminiscent of what life in an office was like. And people had fun. And I think that people met their boyfriends and girlfriends and maybe their their spouses at work, you know, because work was fun. I think that one of the inadvertent and perhaps unforeseen consequences of sucking the fun out of work over the last 25 years, which I've seen happen, is that the desire to go into an office has been uh, has been compromised, right? And so your generation, and you know, you're a lot younger than me, probably can't imagine, but in my generation, like in my company on Sunday nights, very few people slept Sunday nights. And I tell you, I used to not sleep Sunday nights because I was so excited to come to work. Mm-hmm. And one day I was kind of bleary-eyed on a Monday morning meeting and I had everyone working for me in Nomura. And I don't know, I must have said something like, I just, I didn't sleep very much last night. And in fact, I really rarely sleep much on Sunday nights because I'm too excited about work. I'm always thinking about Monday morning. And almost everyone kind of said, wow, we have the same experience. And I realized work so much fun that we couldn't wait to get to work on Monday. And we really were kind of had that nervous energy that kept us from sleeping well Sunday night. I don't think that's the case anymore today. I just don't think people are excited to come to the office anymore because it's a lot less fun. And I think that plays a part in kind of this office demand. So a couple of threads here on how to, I guess, determine whether a specific loan pool or an asset is going to do well. First, you've got the creditworthiness of 
the sponsor. Um, and then you've got, you know, whether the asset is attractive to people. Do you think that we're in a moment of time where people have to be a little more rigorous about the assets that they're looking to invest in, whether it's on the debt side or the equity side? The market was going up and up for so long that maybe people were just willing to spend money on what whatever asset they could kind of get their hands on. Well, I think that um, because um, obsolescence risk is very high in today's market, higher than it's probably ever been in maybe modern history. Uh, and I use the word viability mm-hmm. to to kind of describe whether a building warrants an investment or not. So the first question I always say is, is the building viable? And the test of viability is, do people want to be there? Do they want to either work there or live there or shop there or vacation there? So if the answer is viability is in question because of obsolescence risk, which I think is true today to a very large extent, yes, people have to be more careful than they ever have been in navigating real estate today. And I think distress used to be because distress situations were historically caused by financial pressures. You know, a borrower borrowed too much money and their capital structure is impossible and they, but off, but it was not about obsolescence, right? And today, distress to a large extent or to a great extent exists because of the lack of true viability for the underlying assets. So investors, particularly investors that are looking to take advantage of distressed situations, could find themselves catching a falling knife, which is not a very pleasant thing to do. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, I think it's a different world today. Mm-hmm. 